Today, um, we're going to talk about something that no man ever struggles with, authority, and um, should be fun. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit or demon, he cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the authority we see on display in your son. God, one of the things that, that everybody in this room has no doubt struggled with is authority. How much do we have in this life and how much do we not have? What do we surrender to and what do we stand our ground in? And Jesus, I pray as we look at this story, we can see on display you showing us where the authority that a man of God has actually comes from. And I pray that we can learn the lessons from that so that we can be the men of God that our wives, our children, our future wives, our future children, our family, our church, our city, this world needs for us to be. Not for our sake, not for our glory, but for your sake and yours. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's kind of walk through this passage. So we see Jesus, uh, he, he just kind of left the Sea of Galilee, getting some fishermen. He gets uh, the two pairs of brothers to come and be his guys. Uh, from there, he goes out to Capernaum. Capernaum is a city that eventually becomes like one of Jesus's home, like kind of Jesus' home base. Uh, this is where Peter and his family lived. Uh, Jesus is kind of rumored that, that for a while he was probably even, maybe even staying with Peter at Peter's house. Um, that, that's where it was kind of set up to be the hub of where they did life. In Capernaum, Jesus did many miracles. This is kind of the place where there's this hustle and bustle city that's kind of based around the, the industry that the Sea of Galilee brings to them. So this is a, con this is a big enough city and enough Jewish people there, we're going to find out in a second, that they actually have their own synagogue. So this is a place where uh, synagogue is a little different than a temple. If you were Jewish, uh, the temple was a big giant thing that was in Jerusalem, but each of these little cities and outposts, if there were, I think the number is 12, if there were 12 uh, of age Jewish men, you could start your own synagogue in that place. And so the synagogue kind of, for the Jewish people, it became like their community center. It was obviously the place where on the Sabbath they would gather together, read the Torah, get into the Word, so to speak. It was almost like the best equivalent to what um, we have as church. It would probably be you know, like a church building where things can happen. People could host things there. Uh, from time to time, what would happen at the synagogue is that each synagogue usually had a priest and the priest would be there and he would work at the synagogue. Oftentimes he would be the one who would be teaching from the Torah. Uh, there would be different scribes that would come in and they would take the word of God and they would teach there. And then sometimes traveling rabbis would be invited in to come and speak at the synagogues. And this is what we can kind of tell is actually happening 
here in this story as Jesus shows up and he's kind of the, the guest rabbi this day. I don't know, you know how necessarily he worked his way in. Uh, Capernaum wasn't like this out in the middle of nowhere place. And so it wasn't like this synagogue was likely not a type of place where it was like, well, we're, you know, who wants to teach today? And they just kind of looked around and they saw this, this ragtag Jesus guy with four guys with him. And they're like, well, you want to go? It was probably something that was a little bit more organized than that. Or it was, it, scholars are kind of on different places. It was either Jesus asked and they surrendered that to him. Or it was one of those times where because the synagogue sometimes just served as like a community center, Jesus just shows up and there are people there. And he just opens up the word of God and he begins to teach to them. And that's a little bit of the context and just so you can kind of close your eyes and picture what was actually going on as we get ready to, to lean into the passage. So they're in Capernaum, Sabbath comes, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So what's happening here is, is Jesus comes on the scene and he's teaching and immediately their eyes are open. They're beginning to realize this guy is speaking in a different way. And what will likely have been noticeably different from the people they had heard teach and then who they hear now in Jesus teaching is these guys would have gotten up, these scribes, most likely who this was, they would have gotten up and they would have referenced all these other things. Uh, there's probably, and this is a little bit of speculation here, but a lot of what they're explaining and expressing to the people at synagogue is moralistic, legalistic, religious ways of being able to take the things that are outlined in the Torah and continue to back in. And if the fence of thing is here, they put fences even further and they heap. And the only reason I know this and the only reason we, we have this as a, a pretty fair estimate of what Jesus is saying here and the difference between how they teach and how he teaches is because this is the indictment that Jesus gives them. He says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you teachers of the law. You heap a burden on the people. And so what was happening a lot of times in these synagogues is you would have a religious leader, you would have a, a scribe come in or you'd have even a, a visiting rabbi come in and what they would do is they would sit down, they would open up God's word and they would start giving you all their opinions about it. Or they would start quoting this other rabbi and what he said about this thing. And so they're teaching off of borrowed authority or they're teaching out of their own opinions on stuff. And so when Jesus shows up and he starts teaching, not based off of what somebody else said, not based off of what another rabbi or another scribe says, when he shows up and he begins teaching as the word of God, they realize there is something different here. His authority is the word of God, and they don't really understand this yet, but he is the word of God. That's, you know, back to John 1, 1. He is the word made flesh dwelling among them. And they realize in this moment, he's not quoting anybody. There's no subtext. He's not putting, you know, any slides up. And so I want to show you what so-and-so said. He's saying, this is the word of God. And because he goes that way, he's speaking actually with authority. And what's crazy is they just get that. Because that's what the power of the word of God does. When you hear it and it really is the word of God, this is why the Bible tells us that God's word is living and active. When it steamrolls onto you when, you, when you enter into the place where you're encountering that, you just go, this is different. This isn't some opinion. This isn't some thought or this isn't some quotation. This is actually the living and active word of God. And this is the, the miraculous power 
of the word. And so what's, what's so crazy about like the times when we neglect this and the times when we feel like, well, I don't have time for this. Like there actually is something miraculous happens because it is living and active. It's not a textbook. It's not a TED talk. This is a living, active word of God. And they, despite the fact that they have probably sat, sat through like many of you have sometimes, like sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after talk after talk after talk, that had just been, oh, okay. And they come into this moment and they have an encounter with the real word of God and they know something is different here. Goes on from there. Verse 23. Just then, (laughs) a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. Let's just hang out right there for a second. And again, some of this is is, is speculation, but I I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that this is not a new visitor. And this is what I would say about dead religion, which, again, I think Jesus is coming on the scene and he's, he's busting in. And you see his continued indictment on the religious elite, on the scribes, on the Pharisees, dead Religion is prime territory for demonic possession. Say it again. Dead religion. It's just about what rules I keep, what things I do, and how I'm holy because of what I do or what I don't do. That is prime ground for demon possession. Because it's all about the law and it's not about the relationship with the Lord, the true one who gives it, the true one who sustains the life and gives the power to both guide you into obedience and then forgive the obedience that you weren't able to meet up with. And so you see in this place, you would think, oh, this is a synagogue. This is a holy place. The first place in the gospel of Mark, the first place Jesus encounters a demon is where? Church. Church. Like there should, I mean, there should be something that kind of goes off on our head. He's not at a brothel, you know, he's not at a bar. He, he's at church, so to speak. He is at the best equivalent to what we have, that what they would have. And that is the first place he encounters it. And I'm going to go out on a pretty strong limb, I guess, and say, this is not a first time guest. This is somebody who, and everybody walked in, they were like, oh, well, there's so-and-so over there. And the demon that's been rocking and rolling and so-and-so, this guy, For however long, because the authoritative word of God is preached and that demon comes under that authority as that word of God is happening, the demon can't just continue to hang out. The demon has to cry out because in this moment, maybe unlike every Sabbath prior, what's really being communicated is the authoritative word of God. And I don't think it's just because Jesus is God there in person. I think it is in tandem with the fact that Jesus is actually teaching and preaching the word of God and explaining those things to them. And he is literally the Logos word of God there in the place. And so this demon cannot rock with that anymore. Demons got to say up the power of the word of God. Again, this is where it's living and active and it pushes us uh, to the place where we change and it pushes the, the darkness out of our lives. The demon cries out, verse 24, and he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, this is a unique kind of uh, a phrase here, and this is where uh, theologians and commentaries are a little bit all over the place, and they ask the question, why did he say us? Uh, we, we know the story, and if you look right here, um, In verse 23, if you go back, it says, There is a man in their midst who is possessed by an evil spirit. 
even if you go to the way the Greek has that, it communicates that there is a singular demonic possession in this man. But even the singular demonic possession in the man cries out and says, what do you want to do with us? And there's a couple of different theories on this. One is the demon saying, what do you want to do with us? Like, and it's speaking through the guy as if it was in the congregation and we're all the congregation. And the demon goes, what do you want to do with us? This place, we're okay with things the way they are. We're okay with this religion. And now you're here with this authority. What do you want to do with us? That's one thought. The other thought is, you know, what we see from Scripture over and over again is that this may be the demon just saying, like, what do you want to do with us, like our dominion, our kingdom? We see other times where it's, it's not unfathomable, and we actually see the story of Jesus and the, he's the, the naked multi, the guy who shows up, and, and Jesus asks him, what's your name? And he says, I am legion, because he's got this legion of demons inside of him. So it's, it is, there are different occurrences where there are multiple demons inside of people. Scripture in this story, at least, it seems to show that there's just one inside but this demon, demon is making it fully known that there is an us. And whether that's us talking about, hey, don't mess up our cool congregation because this is a great place for me. Don't ruin this. We like it this way. We don't want somebody coming in with the authority of God because it's going to jack up our dead religion. Or is it this demon saying, hey, all the spiritual dark forces that exist in this region and exist here and are rocking and rolling on earth and inhabiting people's lives, uh, what are you doing with us? Um, so he asks his, his question. He cries out, what do you want to have to do? And uh, I love that he knows Jesus' name. Jesus has, I don't know if Jesus stood up and said, hi, today I'm Jesus of Nazareth and I'm here to bring the word. I, I don't know if Jesus has done that, but the demon quotes Jesus by name and he asks him a question. Have you come to destroy us? Which indicates that the demon knows, this is wild, uh, demons have great theology. James uh, talked about this. He said, even the demons know Jesus' name and shudder. The demon here gives a better testimony than I've heard uh, some pastors bring about who Jesus really is. Um, he says, are you here to destroy us? The demon knows that the ultimate end game for all the demonic forces is their destruction. And then <clears throat> he says these words. And if you, you got to kind of know a little bit of Old Testament stuff to kind of know what the demon is doing here. He says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God, and in your Bibles, hopefully the same way mine is, um, that H, O, and G is capitalized. You're the Holy One of God. That's a, a given title. God in the Old Testament was referred to as that. Um, what, what scholars think is, and theologians think is happening right here is the demon is kind of leveraging the fight and the battle in this moment, thinking that if I can tell the world who you are, I win. Uh, think back to the story of... Uh, Jacob wrestling with, uh, whether it's God or Jacob wrestling with uh, a, an angel, that whole story where Jacob is wrestling, what is he trying to get the angel to do? Tell him his name. And there's this uh, connotation in these, the, the spiritual realm that if in the battle I can identify you, I have now leveraged and got the upper hand. And what the demon doesn't know is that's not going to work in this case. You're not messing. The demon knows who he's messing with, but the demon, again, is not. 
while demons do have a great grasp and an understanding of what is actually going on in the spiritual realm and fully understand who Jesus is, they don't know everything about God's plans and how God is working. Demons are not mind readers in the plans and processes and the omniscience of God. And so he goes, hey, I'm going to try to leverage my best shot because I feel like times are up right now for us and my whole legion here. And he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He, you know, there's an exclamation point there, screams out. And I love what Jesus says next. And be quiet is really a soft uh, translation of what the, the Greek is actually here. It really is much better translated. Shut up. Said Jesus sternly. And again, that's not be quiet. Like how you can't even say be quiet sternly. Uh, you have to say shut up. Um, this is what Jesus says. Jesus telling him to be quiet. Um, and then Jesus says, come out of him. It says the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? That word amazed there in the Greek, um, it's not just like our normal like amazed, like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Um, it's literally like, uh, it's the Greek word there, it kind of makes two words and it means like out of your mind. It's like your mind is blown. Their mind is blown at what just happened. I think Jesus could have not cast out the demon and their minds would have been blown. But what's wild here, and this is what's awesome about Jesus, and I think this is one of the things we can learn about, what does it mean to be a real man of God? Jesus backs up the authority of his word with the authority of casting out the demon. If you read, out, read throughout scripture, it's very clear that Jesus' purpose as he came to earth was not to cast out demons, and to explicitly heal people of sickness, illness, and disease. You see times where Jesus just calls it a day, and he just stops doing it. You see times where Jesus doesn't go and heal everybody. Jesus himself said, I have come to teach. He made that very clear. We quote that, that message where I gave you more scripture than I've ever given you in scripture. That was one of the things that we made really clear. When Jesus shows up, he says, I have shown up to call people to repent because the kingdom of God is near. I have come to teach. And what's awesome here, and we see this on display, is yes, he has come to be and to bring the authoritative word of God and to teach people about the kingdom of God. But these signs and miracles and these exorcisms they are what give proof to the power of the words that he's talking. It is where his, uh, his bite matches his bark and his walk, ma or his, yeah, his walk matches his talk to show that don't just think I'm this person who's out here giving you all these authoritative words, but don't have the power that backs up the power that you see and feel and hear in these words. And so in regards to what does it mean for us to be men of God I really want to, same way we did last week, I really want to leave, leave as much meat on the bones for you guys to discuss at the tables. Because again, I think this passage is somewhat cut and dry from what's going on here. And the big things I would lean into you today before I, I give you the questions and let us go to a conversation is when it comes to authority, one of the things that you can unequivocally see from this story is Jesus authority comes from two things, who he is and what he says. These words that he shows up and speaks are the word of God. So the point that that should make us and help us understand that as men of God, our only authoritative words that we speak, whether it's to wives, to kids, to employees, to other people at our church, 
if our words are to be authoritative, they have to be words that we speak that are rooted in his word. Otherwise, they're just thoughts. They're just opinions. They're not backed up by anything that is living, active, or authoritative. The other thing that we need to understand here is if Jesus, and I think this is some of why um, it is a one-two punch in this story of authoritative preaching and authoritative exorcism. If we are people, and you've you experienced this at work, the boss or leader, whoever they may be, who's the quickest to lose his, uh, or the boss who you are quickest to lose respect for is the one who speaks with authority but doesn't have the actions that back that up. Their actions undermine the authority they say that they have. And so the authority that they have because of the title they have quickly erodes in your eyes because the things that they do doesn't match up with the authority you think they have. And as many times as we've been, as men of God, as many times as we've been on that end where we've seen and noticed that about somebody else in charge, there are probably two dozen more times where people have thought that about us. Where they've gone, I hear him talking all that stuff. I hear dad saying all these things, but I don't see dad doing that. I hear my husband, you know, he wants to, you know, put his foot down in these moments. Um, but the actions may not back it up. And so what we see in this story is this reminder that I can't just go, I'm going to use this word as a weapon to manipulate and, and change people and not have my own life changed and have my own life shifted and molded so that this first and foremost, the way this works is this is the authority for my life. This is what I let govern and rule me. And before I try to take this and let this govern and rule you and to use my influence to to help you live and abide by this, I have to first and foremost make sure that I'm living a congruent life where I'm not calling you to live according to this and not calling myself first and foremost to live according to this where this truly is the authoritative word in my life. And I think for most of us, and I think this is what you see on display with Jesus because he is the living active word of God. When you're when your first and most primary goal and aim in life is to be surrendered to the authority of God, you don't have to try to prove that you have authority to other people. It just puts you in line. You're in, you're in direct source. And that's one of the beautiful things that comes from submission and surrender to the will of the Father. And you saying, I, my, he is my ultimate authority, and I'm leaning into his word, I'm leaning into his ways. Then you don't have to be this guy down here who's... Um, self-conscious, has something to prove, is trying to grasp for power, trying to leverage your way into certain rooms or certain environments, trying to get a good seat at the table. Because, you know, no, actually, the God of heaven, my heavenly Father, is the one who I get authority from, and he is the ultimate authority in my life. And so I don't have to, I don't have to posture. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to try to manipulate people to usurp my authority in their life because at the end of the day, I am just one who sits under the authority of God. And any authority I get to give out is me just passing down secondhand the authority that God has already given and entrusted me to based off of my life that I would give to other people. 
Father God, I thank you for the time that we're getting ready to have uh, in discussion around your word. Jesus, I, I pray that um, as we come to this time where we are able to lean into and look into your word and, and how you have authority and, and just the response that people had when you show up on the scene, I pray that any authority that we give out, any authority that people recognize in us, that it would be true, rooted in your word, authority. And I pray that we would never try to use, muster, and wield that authority without first surrendering to it in our own lives. And so I pray through the conversations that we would begin to handle that, use that, and surrender to that in ways that you truly call us to. In your name, amen.